Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Poem Peeps. Thank you all so much for turning in. And please make sure to rate us and review us whenever you, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Firf and I are really excited about our episode today, Firf, so I'll let you introduce it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited. We're joined by a bunch of people who've been on the show before. This is a discussion I've been really looking forward to, so I'm really thrilled to just dive in. Totally for some of our favorite episodes here on Plum Peeps have been, you know, not only our recent case files, but and top consults, but really our roundtables. And we've had a couple now where we've talked about ARDS ranging from how to titrate peak to phenotypes to lung protection, and most recently also VV ECMO. And I'll say lung protection and diaphragm protection, because that was one of our recent ones. I don't want to forget the diaphragm. (laughs) Today, we're bringing together some of these experts to discuss what comes next for ARDS research. Yeah, Christina, I'm really excited about this. I think a lot of our conversations have been with experts and delving into where we've been. And I'm excited to kind of talk about what could be coming next in the world of ARDS, just for my own learning, but and also for everyone else to hear as well. So many of these experts are Poem Peeps alums, and it's just really great to have them back. So let's meet everybody. Great. And I have the honor of starting to introduce Dr. Carolyn Calfi, is, who is a professor of medicine and anesthesia at the University of California, San Francisco. She's a world-renowned ARDS researcher and has authored multiple landmark studies in the field. You may remember she previously joined us for a discussion on ARDS precision medicine and phenotypes. Carolyn, um, actually one of our faculty brought you up in one of our grand rounds last week and just mentioned the work that you're doing and how that can be translated to different institutions. It's an honor to welcome you back to Palm Peeps, Carolyn. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Christina. That's so kind. Our next guest today is Ewan Gallagher. Ewan is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and the University Health Network. He's equally renowned and has published many practice-changing papers, both prospectively and some fantastic retrospective analyses that have really shaped our understanding of ARDS trials. He previously came on the show and discussed lung and diaphragm protection, and it's a thrill to have him back. Thanks for being on the show today, Ewan. Well, thanks so much for having me back. And next we have Dr. Serena Sahetia. Serena is an assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. She was also on one of our first roundtables. She's a funded researcher and has published multiple studies on lung protection and ARDS physiology. She, as I said, helped us remember how to titrate PEEP and ARDS. So it's a pleasure to have you back on the show, Serena. Thanks, Monty. I'm really excited to to be back as a physiologist and someone who's trying to jump into the space of clinical trials. It's really exciting to be able to be here and talk with everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Last but not least, we have a first-time guest joining us. Matthew Semler is an assistant professor of medicine and biomedical informatics at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He's also the associate MICU director there and the director for the Center for Learning Healthcare. Through his role as the chair of the steering committee for the Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group, he has helped lead more than two dozen randomized trials using this really great and innovative design. Really excited to have him on the show. Thanks so much for joining us today, Matt. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here, and I look forward to learning something from these experts. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And before we go further, just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes, and the topics we discuss today are not meant for specific patient care, and our views don't necessarily reflect those of our respective employers. Firth, let's go ahead and dive in, though. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get to the future of ARDS research, it's really important to have a sense of what the past and current landscapes have looked like. Certainly, there's been huge advances in ARDS care, and there's been improving mortality over time. Some estimates say 
up to 20 to 50% improvement in reduction in mortality from the 1990s to now. This is attributed to some practices that have become very standard of care, like low tidal volume ventilation, proning, and thinking about lung protection in general. However, there's also been a large number of trials that have come out negative, and we've really struggled to identify pharmacologic therapies for this. So Serena, I was hoping you could tell us about some of the challenges in ARDS research that have limited the identification of therapies uh, ongoing. Sure. It's kind of a, a big topic in and of itself. You could probably just focus the podcast around the challenges alone. True. Um, but I think it's interesting when you think about ARDS or acute respiratory failure research specifically in the sense of um, there are some estimates of all the trials that have been done in the ARDS space, only 5 to 20% of them have had any demonstrable benefit in this patient population, which when you think about the rigorous nature of getting a trial to, to phase three, they've had to go through preclinical models, they've had to go through early phase one and phase two investigations, to then have such a, a somewhat dismal success rate is uh, kind of impressive, right? And really, I think, illustrates how difficult this space is. There are so many issues when you think about this unique patient population. I think we'll get into many of them in terms of how to improve research as we talk through the podcast. But the things I think about, it's really ARDS is a syndromic definition that incorporates a lot of both biologic heterogeneity as well as phenotypic heterogeneity when you think about disease etiology, so the difference between someone who comes in with ARDS from influenza versus someone who comes in with ARDS from pancreatitis, those are different etiologies that may have different approaches to them that could improve mortality. And then if you think about the host response as well, between patients who have the same etiologies of ARDS, there's going to be differences in how the body may respond to a specific intervention, whether it's pharmacologic or supportive care. So I think when you try to lump all of those patients into a single trial with the same intervention, it's it gets very muddled in terms of what the real effect actually is of that specific intervention. And then that doesn't even take into consideration things like timing, right? So if you think about antivirals and COVID worked early, but not late when people are in mechanical ventilation, but steroids worked late when they were already sick, but not early, right? And then you also think about the potential harms that come with specific interventions in a sick population, like critically ill populations. So ECMO could be really great for lung rest and preventing lung injury, but come with harms related to anticoagulation and other things. And then you can get into trial design with sample size and statistics, surrogate endpoints. There's so many things that we could talk about, and hopefully we'll touch on some of them. But it's a complicated field, and I would uh, venture to say one of the most complicated fields to do research in. Thank you so much, Serena. And I think definitely some of the, the concerns that you have with the heterogeneity of both etiologies as well as interventions is really important to highlight. And I think another aspect of considering future ARDS research is making sure we're evaluating the appropriate outcomes. And I think all of us here certainly think that mortality um, you know, can be an outcome, but uh, more and more we understand that there are other meaningful outcomes coming out of the ICU, such as disability and PICS. And Matt, I wanted to go to you next um, and, and see what are some outcomes that we should be thinking about in ARDS research and are these changing at all? Yes, thank you. So I think 
really careful work uh, in which we get the opinion of stakeholders, which are the patients and their caregivers, in some cases clinicians, and in some cases health systems have been done to help us better understand in critical care research generally what are the outcomes that our trials and other uh, research should be targeting. And um, this is going to turn out to be not an either or story, but a both and story. So survival is still going to be really important to uh, critically ill patients. but. Uh, these additional functional outcomes, uh, outcomes like quality of life, outcomes like mental health, physical function, are clearly uh, on par and as important to many uh, patients with critical illness as, as is survival by itself. And I think a lot of the best work around that can be found in one place at improvelto.com, which is Dale Needham and colleagues' website that really collates a lot of this work and makes it easy for those who are designing trials to pick outcomes that are not mortality that clinic, clinicians and patients and others from you know, many continents have chosen as the right outcome measures and uh, right outcomes. So I think I would uh, just highlight a couple of caveats, one of which is that um, I don't think it's the expectation that every trial would measure every non-mortality outcome, that these are probably fit for purpose. So if your trial evaluates something that involves the larynx, then maybe voice is an important outcome, uh, whereas if it involves muscle and brain, then physical function might be. So, and that's true of the timing also, that when is the right time of assessment. And then I say there's two challenges around this that the field has to solve in order to make these useful. One is that the competing risk of death in analysis of these outcomes is such an insurmountable hurdle that it almost makes the measurement of these outcomes impossible to interpret right now. So if the 25 to 50% of patients die, there are methods for dealing with that, composite outcomes or survival average causal effect. Those methods are not, they, they kind of have assumptions in them that are not, or they're provably untrue assumptions. We need the statistical methods to make sense of long-term outcomes. And then I think the second challenge is we've got to be able to collect them efficiently. We've had great advances in the efficiency of trials, but right now these are tough outcomes to collect and laborious, and they often cost as much as the rest of the trial. So I think how, how do we, over the next five years, figure out how to analyze these outcomes right and how to collect them efficiently so they can be incorporated into a lot of trials? Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, knowing that there are things that we want to research and, and that the tools are pretty blunt right now for trying to understand them more significantly. Um, you know, in, in addition to the things we've talked about, there's another complicating factor I want to talk about with ARDS Reachers. And this is that we've sort of had an understanding that patient self-induced lung injury in recent years is, is more and more important. And for me, at least, COVID-19 really emphasized this, I think, because of either the volume of patients or the limitation of resources. We really had patients who are on non-invasive and high flow for extended periods of time, maybe even longer than we were doing previously. Uh, so, Ewan, I wanted to ask you how this increasing use of these supports and the development of these technologies uh, that we're using prior to intubation but are still high-level support are changing the ARDS research landscape. Yeah, thanks. That's an interesting problem. I think a big part of the problem is that it's it's very difficult for us to actually measure and sort of document this phenomenon of patient self-inflicted lung injury. You know, when you have a patient who's not intubated, whether they're in high flow or or non-invasive ventilation, it's very difficult to actually assess what's going on inside the chest in terms of their effort and their lung distending pressures and so on. So it's opened up a whole new kind of black box that um, 
that that we've you know struggled to understand and piece together. And if you can't measure and monitor something, it's very hard to target it therapeutically or design an intervention or a protocol. So yeah, it, it, I think it's a it's an important new challenge, especially because uh, you know the use of these te- t- techniques, non-invasive techniques, like you said, is really taking off. High flow nasal cannula has proven to be so easy and so effective in hypoxemia. And uh, one, I think one of the ways it's changing the field is that the, the whole definition of ARDS is undergoing revision to try to account for the fact that these um, patients, patients can have ARDS even when they're not intubated, which is you know something that maybe 15, 20 years ago we might not have conceived of so much. So yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges here, recognizing the disease and then recognizing and quantifying the problem and understanding how to intervene on it. It's opening up lots of really interesting, exciting opportunities for investigation. Yeah, thank you so much for, for that. And I know there have been a number of major randomized control trials in ARDS that have shaped the way we care for patients, both positive and negative trials, as um, Dave and Serena um, touched on earlier. You know, in retrospective analyses of these trials have also provided insights beyond their initial objectives. And Carolyn, I know last time you joined us on the show, we talked all about ARDS phenotypes and your groundbreaking and your groundbreaking work identifying these looking back at prior randomized controlled trials. And I'm just wondering, are there any lessons that we should take from your ability to look back at the trials? And kind of a follow-up to that as well as, is there anything that should be done with future trials to aid investigators in using the data for retrospective analyses? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, And I think, you know, Serena highlighted at the beginning how many of the trials, most of the trials that have been done in ARDS and really in clinical in critical care in general have been quote unquote negative trials, right? Where the they don't reach their primary outcome um, and they don't identify a positive treatment benefit for the intervention they were meaning to test. But I don't think that necessarily means that we can't learn a lot from them. In fact, I think they're really an invaluable opportunity to learn about um, much more than the specific intervention being tested in the overall population and sometimes to ask questions that weren't even considered when the original trial was designed. Um, So I I think from my perspective, it's really important that all trials try to collect biospecimens because I think when when studies uh, or when interventions rather don't work, sometimes we don't know why they don't work, right? Numerous reasons as, as Serena outlined that that could be, one of them could be that you didn't actually get target engagement. It's hard to learn about that for many uh, pharmacotherapies, especially without having biospecimens. Um, but it also allows us then when we do have, you know, a, a rare intervention that works to try to go back in and learn about why that was. Um, ideally, that would come with broad consent for using both the specimens and the data later to study questions that might not have been anticipated at the time of the trial design. Um, you know, it, It'd be wonderful to have that along with a huge amount of clinical data in every clinical trial we do. But of course, there has to be a balance between um, sort of preparing for an infinite number of future possibilities and a practical and pragmatic approach. Uh, but I think, you know, there, there's a there's a nice balance where just a little bit of additional incremental effort on top of the huge amount of efforts that are involved in enrolling a patient into a clinical trial can really be the difference in terms of enabling future research. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Consider always that that balance of how much time and cost it's going to take, and and then what can be available. You, know, you and you have also done a number of retrospective analyses. You've done some uh, system systematic reviews and meta analyses, and you use this Bayesian framework, which I really love, um, to assess these trials and see if we can get more information. So, for example, this past year, I remember reading your trial and uh, determining the effect of PEEP and long recruitment maneuvers uh, by looking at all this data. And it seems like a great source. We have all these existing trials. A lot of it is protocolized and we can glean a lot of insights. Um, and so for you and Caroline, I kind of have a question about how much more can we milk out of these old trials? You know, we have a, uh, it seems like a big database of these patients. We've learned a lot from them. Is there still a lot more that we can get? And what other type of analyses like would you like to do that you think we would have the available data for? Yeah, so I would say there's so much more information and uh, I, almost more fun than reading the original trial descriptions, actually unpacking and understanding, you know, what's really going on under the hood, so to speak. And I would say very early, people talk about there being lumpers and splitters with respect to, you know, trial design and trial interpretation and so on. And I, very early on, I decided that I was a splitter. And that was because when I was a, a keen young resident, I was at... Uh, a meeting, uh, a major critical care meeting, where a trial was being presented of um, kind of a pretty simple intervention applied to a very large heterogeneous population of patients. And sure enough, there was no overall effect and maybe some signal for harm in certain patients. And um, kind of kind of uh, typical of, of uh, the kind of challenges we face in, in critical care. And a senior leader in our field who may or may not be Italian got up and told the investigators that they were killing medicine by doing trials this way. And uh, um, ever since then, I was just completely inspired to say, you know what, like we, we need, we really need to understand how these interventions are affecting different patients differently. And there's a lot of different ways of trying to, trying to do that. You know, Carolyn's work on subphenotypes is sort of a paradigmatic case. And I, I think that uh, one area that I'm involved in working more and more, and I believe Matt is doing, pretty important work in this area as well, is trying to uh, develop methods for sort of really systematically and rigorously characterizing heterogeneity of treatment effect among patients. Trying to, to drill down, how do I, when I'm at the bedside and I'm looking at a patient, how can I use the information from the trial to say not only how all patients with ARDS are gonna do, but how this patient is gonna do on therapy. And that's really the holy grail of precision medicine, obviously. And I think that, you know, the statistical techniques as well as the physiological and, and translational scientific basis for this kind of um, uh, precision are, are, uh, are growing and emerging. And that's an exciting area to be working in, I think. Oh, I love that. I mean, it's so great to hear that there's more knowledge we can glean, but also that that knowledge is so applicable at the bedside or you're starting to have the tools to apply it to the patient who's right in front of you. Uh, Caroline, anything to add or things that you're excited about still looking back at this old data? Uh, well, as you and, uh, I, I, you know, as usual, you, you and summarize it perfectly, I would say. Um, <laughs> yeah. I do think there is a lot more to learn. Um, I think, you know, we're here to talk about ARDS primarily, but as we all know, ARDS overlaps with a lot of other conditions um, like sepsis, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, et cetera. And 
Um, you know, in ARDS, we've had this great opportunity to learn so much thanks to the foresight of the, basically people in the ARDS network and the pedal network largely who collected a lot of these biospecimens a long time ago. And then, you know, others have, have done that as well, but they were sort of the ones that started this. There haven't been as many opportunities in areas like sepsis and acute hypoxemic respiratory failure just because there aren't as many um, data sets with biospecimens, et cetera, that have enabled that type of work. So I do think there's so much more to learn um, from these older studies, um, but I also think there's a, a ton of opportunity still to build more data sets that do have that this type of rich clinical and biological phenotyping available to learn more about these other conditions. I once heard uh, one of the senior leaders in our field describe all trials as a really expensive cohort study also. <laughs> but I, you know what, I think when uh, when you invest this much in enrolling the, these many patients in interventions, you have a duty to, to both the patients and the science to learn as much as you possibly can from it. Oh, really well said. I, I agree completely. Yeah, and that's an excellent transition, you know, to thinking about what the future of ARDS research is going to look like. You know, so mostly we, I think, rely on randomized control trials. Now we've also been talking about systematic reviews, meta-analyses, Bayesian frameworks. And in more recent years, there's been some adaptive trial designs that were very popular during COVID and helpful in quickly identifying some therapies we could use. So Serena, as we're thinking about this and future studies in ARDS, what's going to be our most helpful tool? Are we thinking about broad registries? Or are we still relying mostly on the traditional randomized control trial? Well, I think it'll be a combination of things that we've learned from the past. Uh, there will always be the role for the traditional two-arm randomized control trial, in my opinion, um, especially when you're thinking about early phase interventions or, or examining practices. Um, but I think the key moving forward, as we saw from COVID, is that we have to do trials that are both flexible and adaptive, as you said. And so I think the, the, the future of randomized control trials are these adaptive platform trials that you saw, like REMAC-CAP, like Recovery, like iSpy2, um, where you have the ongoing infrastructure to study a disease, right, and to study different interventions in that disease and to, stu to study different patient populations who have the same disease and that can um, uh, really quickly be, be adapted or changed to um, drop an arm or add an arm, drop an intervention or add an intervention and follow those promising leads in a statistically rigorous way, um, but that you're not having to reinvent the wheel and reinvent resources and infrastructure every time you want to study something. Um, so I think there are, are many um, uh, examples of this that are, are led by some of the people on, on this podcast that are not me. Um, but but I think that we want to make sure that there's there's space and funding for um, all of these different mechanisms to study um, drugs and interventions, to study supportive care and things we do in daily practice that don't have any interventions, to participate in trials that are being done in Canada or in Australia or um, other places around the world. But we have to have kind of the, the funding and infrastructure to support those things. Um, so I think there are some exciting lessons that we learned from COVID and from the past 20, 50 years of ARDS research. We have to integrate them to be able to move forward efficiently. Thank you, Serena. And I know 
I think 10 years ago, when I first met you, you talked about how being flexible and adaptable can lead to success in clinical care. So I'm glad that you're still using that principle um, to help with research and design. Um, and Matt, I wanted to to just get your thoughts next. You know, I know we said pragmatic trials, you know, several times today. And, um, you know, I know some people may not be quite as familiar with what a pragmatic trial design is. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just give us a brief overview of pragmatic trial design and how it differs from traditional trials that people may be more familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to. So the goal when contrasting a traditional explanatory trial and a pragmatic trial, the goal of an explanatory trial is to understand the efficacy of an intervention under idealized conditions. And the pragmatic trial's goal is to understand how an intervention would work in practice. And so the natural application of this is that explanatory trials often evaluate new drugs or new devices. <clears throat> they have strict eligibility criteria, which are often intended to enrich for patients likely to benefit and exclude the patients most likely to have adverse effects. The intervention in an explanatory trial is delivered in a tightly controlled manner by a small number of pretty highly trained study personnel. And it often evaluates the mechanistic effects of the intervention on fairly proximate outcomes. And if you kind of reverse each of those, you have a pragmatic trial. So a pragmatic trial compares the effectiveness of existing treatments. It doesn't have to be existing treatments, but it often is. Often has a very limited number of eligibility criteria, so that the goal is that the trial enrolls the same patients who would receive that treatment in practice. Uh, the interventions are often tried to be embedded within clinical care, so they're delivered by the same treating clinicians that they would be delivered for in practice. And the goal is often to evaluate downstream outcomes, so some of those patient-centered outcomes that we were talking about earlier. So that's the high-level contrast of those two. Uh, I might jump ahead to the idea of how does that apply to this conversation. So I think there's no better time to have a conversation about the role of pragmatism and the role of adaptability in clinical trial design than after COVID, right? So I would make the argument that a lot of what we learned in COVID came from one specific trial, which is the recovery trial in the United Kingdom. And the recovery trial enrolled tens of thousands of patients by enrolling within clinical care. So it was at, in the national health system. Enrollment was performed by clinicians using very simple eligibility criteria. Delivery of the trial intervention was embedded within clinical care without a lot of other study procedures. The outcomes were simple. And recovery delivered uh, a, a outsized proportion of the evidence that we use to treat COVID patients for a single trial. I think that clinical trials, particularly in the United States, have a lot to learn from that example, that I kind of like adaptability and I like Bayesian designs, but that's not why recovery taught us everything about COVID. Recovery taught us everything about COVID because it enrolled a hundred times more patients than any other trial easily and cheaply. And so I think uh, we basically did that trial in the United States in the form of a convalescent plasma cohort. So we can do that. We can enroll patients as part of clinical care. We can uh, deliver the intervention through clinical practice. We can count, uh, capture all the outcomes. We did all that. We just didn't have a control group. So in the United States, we have to figure out how to do trials like recovery uh, so that 99% of patients are, with ARDS are not <clears throat> in clinical care outside of and not having access to research. Matt, Matt, if I could just jump in, I'm interested to know what you think. Do, don't you feel like basically the regulatory 
um, and research ethics infrastructure is is what really prevents us from able to do like why it's so much easier to do that cohort than to actually organize the trial because this is what I'm finding it's like you know so much of what you do when you try to set up a trial is basically uh, you know surmount a series of bureaucratic hurdles. Yeah, I think Ruth Faden at Johns Hopkins uh, in the Bioethics Institute said this best in saying that in so much as the current uh, regulatory constraints prevent the generation of knowledge about these comparative effectiveness therapies that patients are already receiving, those are, are a serious moral challenge, right? That it is part of our ethical duty to understand, and no more was that clearer than COVID. By definition, no one knew how to treat COVID. And in clinical practice, people were giving hydroxychloroquine or not giving steroids or proning and, and, Definitionally, there was no knowledge, and yet it was far easier to do an observational cohort or not do research and give people harmful therapies in clinical care than it was in the United States and other countries, some other countries, to do the research needed to know what treatments to deliver to patients. And that's a profound ethical challenge. I think we're lucky that people in the United States are working on that. So the NIH collaboratory group has a great bioethics group that's working on this, but it's, it is definitely not acceptable for us to treat patients with something clinically, but have barriers to doing the same thing in research. Well, I'm converted. I think I'm going to take my time uh, after this and move from podcast to research advocacy or <laughs> research, research and policy advocacy. That's great. Very well said. Um, you know, in moving forward about that, I, you know, I hope that one day we do have the, the structure and the infrastructure to be able to recruit all patients and apply the therapies that we're uh, using standard practice. And I think an important part of this is, you know, applying the principles of precision medicine and seeing which patients when we want to deliver it, are going to benefit most from uh, the variety of therapies we have. So Carolyn, we've talked about precision medicine with you in ARDS before. A lot of your analyses have indicated that there are patients with different phenotypes, specifically these inflammatory phenotypes, and that they may respond differently to therapies. And, and you showed that in retrospective that there may be heterogeneity of the treatment effect. So can this, uh, this, so can this characterization and this use of precision medicine be harnessed prospectively for testing these new therapies in future ARDS trials? Uh, I give that a qualified maybe, Dave. Um, <laughs> so I think uh, right now, no, but perhaps soon. Um, it's important to remember, as you highlighted, that all of our analyses to date on these quote unquote inflammatory phenotypes have been retrospective. And so I think it's critically important to prospectively test the hypothesis that identifying these phenotypes will in some way influence uh, patient outcomes and response to treatment. Um, I think there are a lot of exciting studies going on in this area right now. Um, ongoing trials to implement real-time biological phenotyping in patients with ARDS. So Danny McCauley of Queen's University Belfast is leading the FIND trial in the UK, which has enrolled already almost 400 patients with real-time biological phenotyping and stratification into um, ARDS phenotypes. Uh, the ICE by COVID network um, in the US is also pivoting towards observational ARDS phenotyping, again, using near patient real-time phenotyping. Uh, and those types of efforts, I think, are really the critical next step to lay the groundwork for testing, again, this hypothesis that identifying these 
patients prospectively in real time will have some kind of influence on uh, on outcomes in a clinical trial in which patients are stratified in real time. I love, I have to comment on it. I think I did last time. I love nothing more than the fact that you, you who are credited with finding them will often say, quote unquote, inflammatory phenotype. I have to start saying biological phenotypes more in my vernacular. Yeah, well, you know, I've said this um, a number of times when I talk, I really regret applying the terms hyper and hypoinflammatory to them. We were trying to find the first paper was so confusing to write because nobody knew what we were talking about with this phenotyping and we were trying to find a way to be succinct about it. So, I, you know, we said, well, why don't we call them hyper and hypoinflammatory? If I had thought this was going to go anywhere, honestly, I would have uh, been a little more, I don't know, guarded about that or something. But we really don't know what the mechanisms are that differentiate these phenotypes. And, and that's another one of the important unanswered questions. Maybe we'll talk more about that in, in a little while. So, so would you, uh, well, I'm pretty sure the palm peeps thing can get anything trending. Uh, so would you, you, you would call it hyperinflammatory and not hyperinflammatory? Let's just call them two molecular phenotypes. How about okay. that? <laughs> I like it. Molecular phenotype A and Z. We'll just pick out letters. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've tried, you know, we've turned around one and two, A and B, hyper and not hyper. I'm just, I'm giving up at this point until we have more. <laughs> Uh, well, in, well, extending on, uh, Carolyn, extending on molecular phenotypes um, in ARDS, there are some different aspects to respiratory failure um, that's classified. Um, for example, patients that seem more recruitable than others um, can be classified differently. And most ARDS trials thus far have used pretty blunt and broad exclusion criteria, for example, the PDF ratio to define severity. And Serena and Ewan, I wanted to ask you both um, on your perspectives, do you think that um, in the future baseline respiratory dynamics will play more into designing ARDS trials? And if so, which factors do you think will be the most important to consider? And Serena, I'll start with you first. You know, I'm actually going to let Ewan answer this first because he's done some really uh, fundamental kind of foundational work in, in looking at which variables should be used uh, to help us understand both predictive enrichment of our trials as well as heterogeneity of treatment effect. Um, so I'll let him go first and see if there's anything intelligent I can add after he's done. <laughs> oh, Sounds thank great. You. Thank you, Serena. Uh, I mean, I guess I would emphasize, so I would say I agree with, I, uh, I, you know, I think the issue is what the driver of heterogeneity of treatment effect is really depends on what you're trying to do, what your intervention is, your disease state, and so on. But in ARDS, thinking about mechanical ventilation, which is where Serena and I spend most, you know, that's the headspace we occupy. Like lung stress is, for example, a major mechanistic priority. So the question is, what kinds of patient features are going to determine whether a patient um, has more or less lung stress during mechanical ventilation? And from the physiological standpoint, the answer is, you know, pretty straightforward. It's the elastins, how stiff the lungs are, and the ventilatory ratio, which is uh, our marker of ventilation inefficiency, essentially, or dead space. And if those two parameters are elevated, then a patient's going to be subjected to more lung stress because you have to ventilate more or you have to apply more pressure to uh, adequately uh, get uh, ventilation in and out of the lung. And the, the, the irony to me is that you know, ARDS as a construct has been so obsessed with the PF ratio. And in every, you know, observational or retrospective study we've ever done, I've never seen a link between lung stress and PF ratio, really. Uh, 
like patients with mild to moderate ARDS often have the same average driving pressure as patients with moderate to severe, uh, just as an example. So I think increasingly, I hope that in, you know, as, as we try to um, sort of rethink trials and how to incorporate these baseline uh, parameters as determinants of treatment effect, that uh, maybe we'll be shifting away from, you know, stratifying ARDS based on PF and focusing more on, I think, more mechanistic, rele- mechanistically relevant parameters like elastins and, and ventilatory ratios. So I don't know, Serena, how was that? <laughs> I think that was uh, better than I ever could have done. Um, but obviously, I, I agree a lot with what uh, Una said in terms of, so for the non-Canadian and non-European listeners, um, thinking about elastins, which is the inverse of compliance, and, and also what kind of driving pressure would be a surrogate for um I think we have learned in ARDS trials that the things that improve your PF ratio are not always the things that will improve your mortality. And in in fact, in the low tidal volume trial, we saw the opposite of that. The higher tidal volume had better oxygenation, but also higher mortality. Um, And so I think it's really getting back to to understanding the mechanism of what will drive mortality in this group, and then those, and what your intervention will act upon. And then those are the things that you, your hypotheses are predicated on that there will either be different treatment effects in different physiologic states, um, or there will be um, kind of a enriched population to kind of maximize seeing that potential treatment effect. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, and I, sh- I should emphasize, like when we're talking about these parameters, we do have some evidence that they actually really do modify treatment effect in previous trials. You know, elastins modifying the effect of lowering tidal volume. That's been described, and we have some interesting data coming out showing that ventilatory ratio modifies the effect of CO2 removal on, on, on outcome in ARDS. So, you know, I think, I think we have a, a mounting evidence base, which is obviously the crucial thing is not to just be armchair philosophers talking about what matters, but really building an evidence base to, to, to strengthen that. And I think Carolyn's done the same thing with the subphenotypes. However you label these entities, there's a re, they're very consistent and, and clearly modify treatment effect. And that's, I think, what makes the case for taking into account these factors so compelling. And, and I think it's actually really important that... Um we think about the interaction between not just the bio- between the biologic phenotypes and the physiologic phenotypes, right? So, you know, Carolyn showed that her subphenotypes uh, have a differential response to different PEEP strategies, something that we would think about being affected by a, a more physiologic responsiveness. Um, and and there are you know additional studies that have been done looking at more longitudinal phenotypes, both biologic and physiologic. And there's an interplay there that we don't truly understand yet, um, but is is going to be I think really important to how we design our interventions and trials in the future. Yeah, that's fascinating. And as Carol, I mentioned earlier, that interplay I imagine will also include sepsis and AKI. You know, we won't just be talking about ARDS and, and when we're talking about that. So really exciting, exciting times when we can more accurately identify those things and and early and quickly at the bedside. 
Um, Matt, I want to ask you a question about the, this principle of precision medicine, and it's one where I'm really admitting total ignorance here because, you know, for me with pragmatic trials, like you described, they sound so useful. They sound so true to life when we're practicing medicine. Um, but in some ways they sound to me like they have less precision, you know, and less ability where you're distinguishing uh, delivery to different patients. That being said, I have read stuff that you've written about how you can still use this for uh, precision medicine effects. So could you tell us about how you can do these precision factors in the context of a pragmatic ARDS trial? Yeah, I'm happy to. And I think uh, since this is uh, a little bit of a contrasting approach, I'm going to uh, be a little wordy here, and you can cut out what you like or let the others respond to contradict it. My, my worldview on this is that of the clinician, which is that I care about what treatment will work best for this patient. So I'm very focused on individual treatment effects. And you can kind of get to that two directions. And I think globally, I, I think about all of this as forward translation and reverse translation. So the way I think about that is forward translation is penicillin, right? Fleming's in the lab. He discovers penicillin. They make it into a biological product. It treats patients uh, and is demonstrated to improve outcomes. So it's from the bench to the clinic. And uh, reverse translation is the steam engine, right? So the field of thermodynamics doesn't exist yet, but the steam engine is needed to get coal and water out of coal mines in England. The steam engine is invented, applied, they understand how to use it, and it backwards spawns the entire field of thermodynamics. And so I think the phenotyping that are being described on this call is forward translation, right? It's trying to understand the biology, understand these phenotypes, and then ask the question, do they modify treatment effect? And individualized treatment effect, or whatever you would call the use of trial data, comparative effectiveness data, where the intervention, the treatment effect is at the center, and the individualization is the back backwards process, is the complement to that. I think we need both, and I think, in clinical trials, we've talked a lot about negative, most clinical trials in critical care are negative. My view on that is, is uh, I would say more precisely, all forward translation clinical care trials are negative, right? Every time we've tried a drug for sepsis, it hasn't worked. But when we've compared the all of the supportive trials, when we compare two different tidal volumes, when we compare proning, when we compare conservative versus liberal fluid management, a lot of those are positive and sometimes we can work backwards to understand the biology better. And, and so I think those are complementary approaches. So I, I think when you think about what is the role for pragmatic trials and comparative effectiveness research, when patients are already being exposed to interventions, we have an obligation to understand which of those are best and deliver the best intervention for that patient. And the way to do that is to compare those and to use that as a lever to work backwards to understanding first individualized treatment effect, and then all the way back. So for pragmatic trials, it is the steam engine informing thermodynamics, not penicillin being developed as a drug and going into care. So that's a long answer. And to make it even longer, how do you do that? So I think in a clinical trial that's pragmatic, we have, we have electronic health records now. So detailed data is not just biological data. We need that, but it's also this detailed, rich data from electronic health records. And if you're running the recovery trial and it's all within an electronic health system or whatever the U.S. equivalent is, it is free to have Q one-minute data on SpO2. So our recent trial in the New England Journal on oxygen saturation targets, every one minute, 
every patient has their SpO2 value in the trial data set. So that we can have granular data in pragmatic clinical trials that could be useful for phenotyping, and we have to do that so that we can know which treatment effects work for individual patients. And you can't know what treatment effects work for patients who weren't in the trial. So in a, when deciding about enrichment versus analysis of individual treatment effect, that's one stone on the weight in favor of individual treatment effect. Hmm. That's fascinating. I love that analogy. It really helps me understand like the way that you're applying a principle and, and then going to be studying it going forward. Yeah, I think that the steam engine research is what I'm going to, uh, one of my takeaways for today. Um, and I know that we've been asking um, you all some very specific questions that, um, you know, we've been interested in and um, want to take the opportunity to open up things a little bit more broadly. I know Dave and I love doing these roundtables because we have four amazing experts in the field here. Um, and we just want to hear your thoughts. And I think that's what listeners really um, appreciate about these episodes. Um, so a question for all of you, um, are there any specific non-pharmacologic interventions for ARDS that you're particularly interested to see studied? Uh, you and I'll start with you first. Uh, so I, uh, I can't be on a podcast like this with you and not take the opportunity to talk about the diaphragm. So <laughs> I would say the, uh, the non-pharmacological interventions, some of the non-pharmacological interventions I'm really excited about are the potential for um, techniques like uh, phrenic nerve stimulation for diaphragm pacing. And I think there's really intriguing preclinical evidence to suggest that uh, a technique like this may protect the diaphragm, but might also be good for other organ systems as well. In full disclosure, I, I um, consult for company, a number of companies that are developing these devices, but um, I don't think that's why I'm excited about them. I, I really think it's... Uh, a potentially exciting area for development. And I think, you know, diaphragm weakness is clearly an important determinant of outcome in, in ARDS and hypoxemic respiratory failure more broadly. And I think another intervention that has fairly compelling uh, trial evidence is inspiratory muscle training. It's not something we do a lot um, and probably needs a, a large definitive and maybe even pragmatic clinical trial to just confirm that it's a value in clinical practice. And I think that's another potentially high impact, cheap and very simple non-pharmacological intervention that might improve outcomes for our patients. Hmm. Well, let's hope that this is the start of that trial. Matt, you're in maybe a chat after that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for connecting us. <laughs> uh, with that, we'll go to, um, go to you, Matt. Anything else? Um, any other non-pharmacologic interventions you're interested in seeing? Yeah, I think um, all of them. So any treatment that a patient with ARDS could get in clinical care, and we don't know if it improves outcomes, we have to have studied it, right? That's our obligation. And so I think there's some obvious ones for me that patients, before they get innovated, whether they should be receiving high flow, non-invasive or conventional oxygen therapy, every patient with ARDS, as they get innovated, should they get atomidate or ketamine or another induction agent? How do those things, it does that adrenal insufficiency affect mortality, does receipt of a long-acting neuromuscular blocker cause PTSD through awareness during paralysis while they're on the ventilator, which mode it's the most, it's the first button you have to push on the ventilator. I would bet the four of us use a different mode when we put the, the same patient on the ventilator. Uh, 
when you put somebody on ECMO, how to anticoagulate, whether they should be uh, weaned off ECMO in a structured way, that essentially every aspect of care for patients that uh, we might see the same patient do something different deserves uh, to be evaluated so that we can be implementing which treatments are best for which patients. So that's a tall order, but I think that's what I think we have to do. Awesome. Carolyn, anything you want to add? Yeah, well, uh, I'll say everybody else on this call is more expert than me in this question, but I'll agree with everything that that both you and and Matt said. I think the the questions around this that come up the most frequently when I'm attending clinically are, um, you know, should we be targeting driving pressure or tidal volume? Um, For sure. Uh, How do we personalize mechanical ventilation? How do we personalize PEEP uh, in order to protect the diaphragm and to protect respiratory muscle function? Um, And then, like Matt said, just more studies on pre-intubation and not management of the non-intubated patient who has otherwise what we think of as ARDS. Fantastic. So many things to definitely think about. And um, Serena, I'll see if you have anything else to add from your perspective. No, I think I'll um, echo what uh, everyone else has said, that there's so many phases of care that um, deserve further study, whether it's a pre-intubation with what respiratory support to provide while they're intubated, what mode to use, or um, how to personalize their their ventilator settings. And um, again, not one of my spaces, but would be really interested in seeing interventions that can improve survivorship and, and outcomes and, and people who we actually get through their acute phase of illness. Um, I'm obviously interested in, in driving pressure uh, and, and that's what I study. But um, I think what Carolyn said is, uh, you know, how do you personalize mechanical ventilation? So all of our studies so far, big, large phase three studies have looked at kind of applying the same, inter- same intervention to all comers. And now I think some of what we have to do is go back and think about um, how do we apply maybe some of the same interventions, but to people who might benefit from it. So looking at PEEP responsiveness and um, in, in people we give higher PEEP to, looking at, at uh, patients who might benefit from, from ECMO from a physiologic standpoint. So some of it's reinventing the wheel, but in the right people. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because it's also reinventing the wheel in the right people and then making sure that people can identify them easily, right? Because it's already we see that there are so many principles that we know are good that are not applied so broadly. So, you know, it's this other element, too, of making it both uh, both known, but then also facile and easy to use. To build in on that question, I wanted to turn to pharmacologic interventions. I feel like this is an area where there's not been a huge amount of progress in ARDS, uh, and I'd love to know what the next one is going to be. Uh, so I'm wondering, are there certain things that we should see research further, or should we just keep running steroid trials until we've really cracked that nut? <laughs> uh, so Caroline, I think we'll start with you. Um, I, I do think we should do more steroid trials because we, we, um, we see from COVID that when we have more focused populations of patients, we may be able to identify subsets of patients that do benefit from steroids and around which we can build more consensus than we've had in our 50 plus years of studying steroids in traditional ARDS. I think the good news is there are a couple of large uh, steroid trials that are um, going to be starting, one in Canada and one in the UK, um, that may give us some some answers and, and specifically may enable us to identify whether there are benefits in subsets of patients. 
Um, I'm also interested in simvastatin in part because of the evidence um, that suggests there may be heterogeneity of treatment effect related to inflammatory or molecular phenotypes. I think, um, you know, the, the benefits of immunomodulatory therapy in COVID have made me think that we need to consider how we might test those in ARDS. Um, and then to me, I think the vascular endothelium is a, a part of ARDS that we know is really critical in terms of the biology and pathophysiology, but that hasn't really been targeted much in clinical trials. So I'm interested in, in new drugs that may target that area. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, all things that I'm looking forward to as well. Serena, any pharmacologic therapies that you have heard about or think about or excited about? Gosh, I'm, not, I'm by no means a pharmacologic uh, expert since I stay more on the non-pharmacologic side, but um, I would, I, I agree. I think immunomodulation, especially coming out of COVID and, and thinking about um, how we can regulate the host response, which up to a certain point is physiologic and, and helps you overcome infection, but then can get out of control um, is really important moving forward. And, and a lot of uh, um, what I think is interesting is a lot of the preclinical models are, are testing interventions in the early phases. So, um, you know, day one or day two of, of respiratory failure. And, and I think we need things that work later when people are presenting to us. Um, and I don't know what that therapy is, but I want to see things that, that work when they show up in our ICU, not necessarily before we ever get a chance to get to them. But that's because I'm an ICU doctor. Other people will say differently. No, that's fascinating. That's totally true, right? It's like, we, if it has to be delivered in the first day or two, then what do we do with so many of our patients that are there later? Our hospitalist friends and IDD friends are, are all over that. Um, but by the time they get to me, the horse is already out of the barn. Yeah, absolutely. Ewan, Matt, uh, pharmacological things that you're looking forward to or think are interesting? Uh, I feel like I'm not smart enough to know what pharmacological therapy should be tested in ARDS. I'm positive I, that's not true. But <laughs> I, I did one trial of heparin in ARDS. It didn't work out very well for all concerns. So, uh, I mean, of course, we learned about its treatment effect, which was the goal. But you know, you think that you have something that's going to be so good for people and then you find out that it actually harms them. And so I, all I'm trying to say is it's hard to know what's going to work in the space. Whereas I feel like with physiology, we already know the answer. We just have to do the trial. <laughs> I, get I have uh, even less than you and to add in this space. The one thing I would say I've, COVID has emphasized to me is that I feel like maybe sepsis and ARDS has tended to test the drugs we have, vitamins and things with vague off-target effects. COVID, the, in ID researchers did really well by picking drugs that were in the mechanistic pipeline really directly. So a protease inhibitor makes a lot of sense for a virus that replicates using a protease. I, I'm eager to see in uh, the next generation of critical care research, are there drugs like that for influenza or for other immediate causes of critical illness uh, because of the challenges of regulating the immune system once the cat is out of the bag? So I'd say 
uh, and, and then I would say the opposite of Serena, which is that I think I've become completely sold that critical care happens in EMS and in the emergency department, and that's where critical care trials and other research have to happen. So we can't, uh, we have to go to where the patient's critical illness is. And I think those are the important phases of that illness. Well, but the difference is they're actually already sick when they're picked up by EMS and in the emergency department. Right, right, right. Um, but I, I, I just want to point out that I'm from Kentucky, so I said horses out of the barn, and I, I don't remember where you're from, but the cat's out of the bag for you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> this is the most right. important thing to settle. In, in Washington, D.C., we keep a lot of cats in bag. I'll explain that separately. Yeah. Um, well, I know we're nearing um, our time together here, and um, when, when y'all are not spending an hour um, being on Palm Peeps with Furf and I, we know that y'all are actually doing the work and the research needed to move the the field forward. So one of our last questions for each of you, is there any projects that you're working on right now that you'd like to share with listeners today? Uh, Serena? Oh, um, yeah, so um, I have uh, two main things that I've been working on. I'm, I'm funded by the NIH in, for a career development award to look at the feasibility of using a driving pressure um, targeted strategy to improve outcomes for patients who have acute respiratory failure. Um, I've been able to leverage that into a really amazing collaboration with UN um, that has been funded by the Canadian government to look at a phase three study of a driving pressure targeted strategy. And, and one of the exciting things about that is that um, uh, UN and some of his colleagues in Toronto have established a a platform trial uh, for acute respiratory failure to test these different types of interventions, whether they be pharmacologic or mechanical ventilation interventions. And the one that um, that I've been involved in is, is to really answer, I think, one of the biggest questions in ventilatory management since Amato's paper came out in 2015, suggesting that driving pressure was the most important uh, ventilatory variable for patients with ARDS. Um, and I think it takes a, a large and global effort to answer that question. And, and so um, we've just been working on, on getting that off the ground and, and utilizing some of the infrastructure that, that he's built up there. Thank you so much. I'm glad that there's already collaborations. Um, Carolyn, I'll go to you next. Yeah, sure. So. Um, We've got a number of different projects we're working on. Uh, we're trying to really understand, as I alluded to earlier, the biological differences between these molecular phenotypes, knowing that hyper and hypoinflammatory are really two simplistic terms that don't capture um, what the true mechanistic and prognostic differences between these phenotypes are. So we're using a variety of different translational and sort of omics type of approaches. Uh, to understand how these phenotypes differ in terms of their immune response, the pathogens involved, mechanisms of onset and resolution, et cetera, um, that really characterize these differences and therefore might be um, interesting to target in clinical trials. We're also trying to understand how far these phenotypes extend beyond ARDS into sepsis, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, and other conditions that we know have big overlaps in the Venn diagram of critical care conditions with ARDS. 
um, and then working with my clinical trialist colleagues, including you and others, to try to integrate phenotyping into platforms, into ongoing prospective studies, um, so that we can lay some of that groundwork for testing these hypotheses and precision clinical trials. So much to look forward to. Um, I think Matt will go with you next, and then we'll end with you in. Yeah, absolutely. I'm uh, lucky enough to be working with our pragmatic critical care research group, and uh, that group just finished a 1,400 patient trial of uh, video versus direct laryngoscopy that we hope to see the results of shortly. Is enrolling in a trial of th 1,300 patient trial of non-invasive ventilation versus face mask oxygen for pre-oxygenation during emergency intubation in the ED and ICU, and is enrolling in the trial of ketamine versus atomidate in terms of longer-term patient center outcomes after emergency tracheal innovation. And then with our Center for Learning Healthcare here at Vanderbilt, we uh, just finished a 2,500 patient trial of the two most common antibiotics in sepsis, so zosin and cefepime, uh, to understand what the effects are on kidney injury and neurologic function of those two common choices. And then I'll put in my final plug, which is we're working with Matt Chirpek at Wisconsin to understand how to analyze trials for individualized treatment effects. So if you are listening to this and you have the data set for a clinical trial that Matt Chirpek doesn't have already, email us. We want him to have that and we want to understand so how to tell treatment effect for individual patients from clinical trials. Now I know what my next Poem Peeps episode email is going to be about. <laughs> Awesome. And you, in um, anything that you want to share? Uh, so, yeah, uh, uh, leveraging the platform that, that Serena was describing, uh, I'm uh, also working on a trial of a lung and diaphragm protective ventilation strategy, which uh, is really about avoiding ventilator-induced lung injury, preventing patient self-inflicted lung injury, and protecting the diaphragm because we're not just trying to optimize lung stress, we're also trying to optimize respiratory effort. And, and the intervention ends up involving not just what you do with the ventilator, but integrating ventilator ventilation with sedation, because in order to control respiratory effort, you really have to pay attention to what the sedation is doing as well as what the ventilator is doing. So it's a complicated problem, but uh, we're testing a, an intervention. We've been working on it in a, in a phase two trial as part of this platform, and I'm excited about that. Amazing. So I think we'll skip the last takeaway point since we're over time. So thank you all so much. This was a wonderful hour. I'm really excited to listen back to it myself. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners are going to take away a lot from it. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And thank you all for tuning in and listening. Uh, join us again in two weeks for our next episode. Uh, this episode was written and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time.